You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. If people find the Catholic notion of a common good strange when they hear a theoretical presentation of it, it might be helpful to think about the effect of 9-11 on our country. You know, think of the sacrifice of the policemen and the firemen to save, you know, the lives of their fellow citizens. I think if we reflect carefully, we have to recognize that that contributed immensely to the common good of the nation. Citizens sacrificing themselves for other citizens and giving us an example in a way of how we might imitate them even in a pale way in our own life. Now today, I would like to continue our reflection on the common good by explaining how it is sought through the practice of virtue. You know, while many things contribute to the attainment of the common good, virtue, including wisdom and grace, deserve a special mention. The Catechism sets the proper tone in the section on the human community with the following statement, quote, it is necessary then to appeal to the spiritual and moral capacities of the human person and to the permanent need for his inner conversion so as to obtain social changes that will really serve him, end quote. Otherwise stated, conversion leading to the love of God and neighbor is the necessary condition for obtaining social reform. So that there is no misunderstanding in the meaning of the text, the Catechism adds, the acknowledged priority of the conversion of heart in no way eliminates, but on the contrary imposes the obligation of bringing the appropriate remedies to institutions and living conditions when they are an inducement to sin, so that they conform to the norms of justice and advance the good rather than hinder it." End quote. In other words, it is not really possible to bring about the reform of institutions and living conditions unless people really know and want to do the right thing. And the desire to do the right thing must include efforts to reform institutions. Finally, the Catechism links conversion, love, namely the theological virtue of charity, and social reform to grace. The text reads, without the help of grace, men would not know how to discern the often narrow path between the cowardice which gives in to evil and the violence which under the illusion of fighting evil only makes it worse. This is the path of charity, that is, of the love of God and neighbor. Charity is the greatest social commandment. It respects others and their rights. It requires the practice of justice, and it alone makes us capable of it. Charity inspires a life of self-giving." To put this in Augustinian terms, grace is the true bond of society because it makes possible genuine love of God and neighbor, not to mention respect for human rights. The Catechism clearly implies that rights are not the primary moral counter. Having rights doesn't transform the soul and therefore doesn't necessarily incline a person to love God and neighbor. Charity, on the other hand, transforms people's 
and causes them to respect the genuine rights of their fellow human beings. This catechetical teaching with roots in the grand Catholic tradition has enormous implications for the way rights are conceived and approached and for the place of virtue and grace in Catholic social teaching. The proclamation of rights cannot deliver all that the seekers of social justice expect unless individuals have order in their soul produced by charity and the other virtues. The virtues and grace therefore deserve a place in the lineup of major themes of Catholic social teaching, whether in scholarly studies or in Episcopal statements. Cardinal Ratzinger's Salts of the Earth has a nice statement on the theme of social problems caused by disorder in the soul or lack of virtue. He says, the pollution of the outward environment that we are witnessing is only a mirror and consequence of the pollution of the inward environment to which we pay too little heed. I think this is also the defect of the ecological movements. They crusade with an understandable and also a legitimate passion against the pollution of the environment, whereas man's self-pollution of his soul continues to be treated as one of the rights of his freedom. There is a discrepancy here. We want to eliminate the measurable pollution, but we don't consider the pollution of man's soul. As long as we retain this caricature of freedom, namely of the freedom of inner self-destruction, its outward effects will continue unchanged. In other words, if people are greedy, they may pollute the environment because it costs too much in order to adopt measures that would prevent the pollution of the air, the water, or the land. Environmental problems then are caused by disorder in people's souls, as are all other social problems, in one way or another. Now, a detailed explanation of the cardinal and theological virtues is important in order to see in detail why the common good depends on their practice. It is interesting to note that the word cardinal derives from the word cardo, which means hinge. The moral life and the common good hinge on the practice of these virtues. You know, just as a door swings on hinges, so human life really swings on the practice of the virtues. Given the all too common view that virtue is a private affair, it is not superfluous to point out that Aquinas refers to the cardinal virtues as social virtues. Quote, since man by nature is a social animal, these cardinal virtues insofar as they are in him according to the condition of his nature are called social virtues, since it is by reason of them that man behaves well in the conduct of his affairs." End quote. As John Paul II was leaving the United States in the fall of 1995, he said, today the challenge facing America is to find freedom's fulfillment in the truth I say this to the United States of America. Today in our world as it is, many other nations and peoples look to you as the principal model and pattern for their own advancement in democracy. But democracy needs wisdom. Democracy needs virtue if it is not to turn against everything that it is meant to defend and encourage." End quote. If the listening to John Paul's speeches, any thoughtful person will ask himself, what does the Pope understand by virtue? And could he reasonably expect segments of American culture to become inquisitive and enthusiastic about his understanding of virtue, especially given the fascination with autonomy and the predominance of rights in America? In this lecture, I will present a typical account of the Catholic understanding of the virtues and ask my readers to judge whether the practice of these virtues would contribute to the common good of the United States. My plan is to give a presentation 
on the cardinal virtues, except for justice, which will be treated in a separate lecture based entirely on the writings of Augustine and Aquinas. Now, only in passing will I have time to address the theological virtues in my oral presentation, but in the written text, you will find a treatment of those as well. Now, the use of the word virtue has not been heard in public until very recently. People more readily speak of rights, values, good character, moral or ethical conduct, fairness, and integrity. Even in Catholic circles, virtue is no longer a familiar word. Asking a freshman theology class at a Catholic university to name a virtue is usually a conversation stopper. In response to silence, I usually ask students to say something, to make a guess. On one occasion, a student said cleanliness, no doubt thinking you know, of the proverb, cleanliness is next to godliness. On another occasion, a student came closer to the mark by saying patience. I couldn't help but think that the source of his answer was the proverb, patience is a virtue. In all my years of teaching, no one ever responded, prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude, faith, hope, and charity. This is not to say that many students and other Americans don't practice these virtues in their everyday lives. Most simply can't describe their thoughts, desires, and deeds in terms of virtue. Now, when I ask students why they respect other people's rights, they usually say so that people will respect mine. But when you push them, they really do have a higher motivation. That many young people will respect other people's rights simply because it's the right thing to do, namely that it is the virtuous thing to do, but they're not able to describe their actions in the terms of virtue. Nevertheless, publications such as Alastair McIntyre's After Virtue have given rise to virtue talk and virtue theory in academic circles. The emphasis on social justice among Catholics has gradually increased interest in the older concepts of the common good and virtue. The revival of core curricula in universities has in many instances led to the rediscovery of older books in which virtue is a common theme. In Christian theologians such as Ambrose, Augustine, and Aquinas, some common descriptions of virtue are as follows. Order in the soul, well-ordered reason, the proper control of the passions by reason, the good use of free choice, living according to nature, living according to reason, compliance with God's will or the divine law, love of God and neighbor, and friendship of man for God. St. Augustine defines virtue as the perfect love of God. He then refines this definition by adding that virtue is fourfold. Quote, temperance is love giving itself wholeheartedly to that which is loved. Fortitude is love enduring all things willingly for the sake of that which is loved. Justice is love serving alone that which is loved and thus ruling rightly. And prudence is love choosing wisely between that which helps it and that which hinders it, end quote. This love of God for Augustine is an attitude and activity that engages a person's whole mind, heart, and soul. He goes so far as to say, when the divine majesty has begun to reveal itself in the measure proper to man, while an inhabitant of earth, then such ardent charity is engendered and such a flame of divine love bursts forth that all vices are burned away and man is purged and sanctified. The fervor of charity consumes vices such as envy, gluttony, drunkenness, avarice, and anger. In other words, a passionate love of God gives a person motivation to overcome sinful habits, always, of course, with the necessary help of God's grace. Thomas Aquinas says that nothing in the gospel is taught that does not pertain to virtue. 
Aquinas continually points out that virtue makes people good and their work good. His precise definition of virtue is as follows, quote, virtue is a good quality of the mind by which we live rightly, of which no one can make bad use, which God works in us without us, end quote. Aquinas affirms that this definition, originally put forward by Peter Lombard, expresses perfectly the whole nature of virtue because it includes all the causes of virtue. The formal cause of virtue is a good quality, or more appropriately stated, a good habit. The object of virtue, or the matter about which it is concerned, does not appear because Aquinas wants to present a general definition of virtue. Specification of the object would require a reference to the function of each particular virtue. Consequently, Aquinas only mentions the ultimate subject of virtue or the matter in which virtue is found, namely the mind or reason. Virtue can only be in the concupiscible or irascible appetites insofar as they participate in reason by following its commands. That the end of virtue is a good operation is expressed by the words by which we live rightly. That virtue consists of habits continually inclining a person to the good is indicated by the words of which no one can make bad use. The efficient cause of virtue is God, indicated by the clause which God works in us without us. Both the theological and cardinal virtues can be infused by God without acts on our part, but not without our consent. In other words, free will must cooperate with divine grace. Possession of the cardinal or principal virtues gives not only the ability to be good, but also causes the performing of a good action. The cardinal virtues exhibit the perfect notion of virtue because they bring about rectitude of appetite. Intellectual virtue, on the contrary, simply gives an ability to perform a good action. A person in possession of intellectual virtues, except for prudence, may choose to use them or not. The theological virtues are similar to the moral virtues since they also cause the performing of a good action. Like Augustine, Aquinas also stresses the involvement of heart and mind in the practice of virtue. He explains, but if a passion follows the judgment of reason as commanded by reason, the passion helps in carrying out the command of reason. This means that virtue at its height causes the enthusiastic performance of good deeds. Now, what does he mean by intellectual virtue gives you an ability to perform a good action but doesn't necessarily incline you to do it? You know, think of a mechanic who has a skill at repairing cars. He may not always use his skill. If he is simply a moneymaker, he may say that you need a new carburetor when you don't need a new carburetor, but he's really not making a mistake on the basis of his knowledge that he is just choosing to be dishonest. But if you have the virtue, you necessarily will act according to it. You're not going to suspend the virtue as you would, you might suspend your practice of an art. Let's look at these three cardinal virtues, prudence, fortitude, and temperance. Augustine says that the role of prudence is to keep a constant watch so that we are not led astray by the imperceptible workings of an evil influence. He says prudence may be characterized as right reason applied to action. Otherwise stated, it is the function of prudence to apply right reason to action with the help of an ordered appetite. In applying reason to action, Prudence doesn't appoint the ends of the moral virtues, but chooses the means appropriate for realizing these ends. The virtue of prudence necessarily relies on the moral virtues to order the appetites because seeing clearly requires well-ordered passions or feelings, not their absence, of course. 
To see clearly, a person must also take counsel or think things over with the help of others when necessary, discern the relevant factors, make a judgment, and then act. Seeing clearly requires docility or open-mindedness, which is often a difficult trait to acquire. Even St. Augustine was not always open-minded or docile. And on one occasion, a bishop refused a request from Augustine's mother to talk to her son. The bishop simply said, he lacks docility as of yet, and therefore will not listen. And I think most of us have been in the same position. People sometimes cannot tell us something that we really need to hear. Counsel and judgment are necessary because the exercise of prudence requires not only knowledge of universal principles, but also familiarity with a host of singulars or the relevant factors in a situation. It belongs to counsel to discern the pertinent singulars from the great number present to a person's mind. We take counsel in order to grasp what needs to be known about a particular situation. This ability to see is enhanced by long experience and the possession of various qualities designated by Aquinas as the quasi-integral parts of prudence. Aquinas also mentions things like experience, docility, shrewdness, and foresight. I have always been impressed by Joseph Pieper's statement about the role of prudence in enabling us to see things the way they are. He says, the preeminence of prudence means that the realization of the good presupposes knowledge of reality. He alone can do the good who knows what things are like and what their situation is. The preeminence of prudence means that so-called good intention and so-called meaning well by no means suffice. We often praise people for being well-intentioned and well-meaning, and rightly so to a point. Some of my freshman students no doubt mean well when they party too much in their first semester. Nevertheless, there is always a price to be paid for not seeing things the way they are, even if we have the best intentions in the world. Fortitude is the virtue that enables a person to face death and hardship or toil for the sake of achieving a good in accordance with reason and or God's will. Fortitude is chiefly about fear of difficult things which can withdraw the will from following the reason or God. In St. Ambrose's On Duties, he uses the concept of fortitude in a very broad sense to indicate a form of resolve in the face of every kind of temptation as a limited virtue with the specific task of facing death, the principal act of fortitude is endurance. That is to stand immovable in the midst of dangers rather than to attack them. A virtue closely associated with fortitude is patience and occupies an important place in the thought of St. Ambrose. St. Gregory the Great, St. Augustine, and St. Thomas go so far as to affirm that charity cannot exist without patience. St. Gregory says, the less patient a man proves to be, the less instructed does he show himself to be. And he cannot truly impart by instruction what is good if in his own way of life he does not know how to bear with equanimity the evils that others do. Aquinas says, patience safeguards the good of reason against sorrow, lest reason give way to sorrow. The moderation of sorrow is important both to obviate the temptations to such vices as anger and hatred and to prevent loss of enthusiasm for the practice of virtue. According to scripture, because wickedness is multiplied, the love of many will grow cold. Giving way to sorrow because of personal suffering or societal injustice 
not only takes up valuable time, but also decreases zeal for accomplishing whatever good is possible. Not surprisingly, Aquinas argues that patience is caused by charity, which no one attains without the help of grace. A strong desire to love God and neighbor gives us strength to bear adversity and everyday difficulties. To make his point, Aquinas quotes Augustine's De Patientia, or On Patience. The strength of desire helps a man to bear toil and pain, and no one willingly undertakes to bear what is painful, save for the sake of that which gives pleasure. Pleasure arises from the practice of charity and all the other virtues. In the Summa Theologiae, Aquinas argues that the virtues which restrain the impetuosity of the emotions are reckoned as parts of temperance. In De Moribus, or on the morals of the Catholic Church, Augustine says that the function of temperance is to restrain and still the passions which cause us to crave the things that turn us away from the laws of God and the enjoyment of his goodness, that is to say, from the happy life. As examples of these passions, Augustine first mentions greed, bodily pleasures, desire for human glory, and desire of vain knowledge. The problem with these desires is that each man is conformed to the thing he loves. In addition, disordered cravings cause us to lose our freedom and to become slaves of the objects we crave. For example, desire for popular acclaim makes one a slave of others' opinions and desires. The passion for public acceptance and affection leads people in positions of authority, whether public or private, civil or religious, to neglect the real good of those for whom they have responsibility. In his book on the priesthood, St. John Chrysostom warns priests and bishops that desire for affection could induce them to dilute or omit part of Christ's teaching. Quote, through his passion for praise, the priest or bishop aims to speak more for the pleasure than the profit of his hearers. The man who is carried away with the desire for eulogies may have the ability to improve the people, but chooses instead to provide nothing but entertainment. His soul, being unable to bear the senseless criticism of the multitude, grows slack and loses all earnestness about preaching. St. John Chrysostom clearly saw things that were important for us to know in this modern time of the crisis of the Catholic Church. Now, just a few words on the connection among the virtues. Aquinas quotes Gregory the Great as support for his view on the connection of the virtues with each other. There is no true prudence without justice, temperance, and fortitude, he says. Aquinas also points out that Augustine and Aristotle hold the same opinion. The reason, as previously mentioned, is simple and logical. Virtue is the good use of free choice. Choice requires not only an inclination to an appropriate end, which arises directly from the habit, but also the correct choice of means to an end, which is made by prudence, which deliberates, judges, and commands in regard to the means. The converse, of course, is also true. One cannot have prudence without having the moral virtue, since prudence is right reasoning about what is to be done, whose starting point is the end of the action to which we are rightly disposed by the moral virtues. Aquinas further notes that moral virtues capable of producing works unto salvation require the virtue of charity. He explains, now for the right reasoning and prudence, it is much more necessary that man be well disposed to the ultimate end, which is the result of charity, then that he be well disposed to other ends, which is the result of moral virtue. It logically follows that justice, fortitude, and temperance can't exist without charity either, since they depend on prudence. On the other hand, charity cannot be complete 
without the assistance of the moral virtues to facilitate the performance of each kind of good work. For example, temperance restrains the passions such as the desire for gain or pleasure, which might lessen or blot out our love of God. Fortitude gives strength to overcome fear of dangers or hardships that could deter us from loving our neighbor by conscientiously fulfilling responsibilities in the family or on the job outside the home. You know, think of the policemen and the firemen and what fortitude they need, what courage they needed in order to go into those buildings on 9-11. With respect to the relation between prudence and charity, the well-known Thomas scholar Joseph Pieper goes so far as to say that the highest and most fruitful achievements of Christian life depend upon the felicitous collaboration of prudence and charity. The practice of charity requires the infused virtue of prudence. Charity inclines an individual to love God, and prudence chooses the various means to realize that end, taking into account such things as one's state in life, talents, opportunities, as well as the needs of the church and the requirements of the common good. My last point regarding virtue and happiness. Aristotle defines the happy man as the one whose activities are an expression of a complete virtue and is sufficiently equipped with external goods not simply at a given moment, but the end of his life, end quote. Self-inflicted unhappiness necessarily results from absence of virtue. Some degree of unhappiness is, however, also caused by chance misfortune, such as ill health, extreme poverty, loss of liberty, the death of family members and friends, hunger, war, et al. Aristotle clearly teaches that even the most dedicated practice of virtue is no guarantee against the outrageous slings of fortune. He doesn't go out of his way, of course, to make that point the way St. Augustine does in the City of God, who describes in the beginning of Book 19 all of possible evils that we are subject to. Aristotle probably chose not to mention all those things so as not to discourage us. Augustine didn't mind discouraging us because he could also promise eternal life if things did not go too well here. So in other words, in Christian terms, even the most prudent and innocent conduct is sometimes not enough to keep troubles away from our life. But the practice of virtue will certainly enable us to bear them a lot better. In our next lecture, we will spend the whole time trying to understand exactly what is meant by justice. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.